We are studying through the book of 1 Corinthians. This is the 22nd message uh, from the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're going to be looking at um, these verses beginning in verse 14 in just a few minutes, but uh, you want to have your Bible open there. We're going to be looking at some other passages as well, and I hope that you'll follow along with me as we continue talking about uh, this letter, the letter of the Corinthians. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray now that as we turn our attention to your word, Lord, worship doesn't stop at this moment. Worship isn't just singing. Worship is listening to your word and being open to hearing you speak to us. Worship is responding to what we hear. Worship is bowing before you and acknowledging that you are Lord. And I pray today, Lord, that we will recognize that and that we'll leave this place today knowing that we have worshiped you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Recently in my Bible reading time, I've been reading through or have finished reading through the book of Judges. I don't know if you've read through the book of Judges recently, but there are a number of startling things that you read when you go through that book, things that are striking in the sense of shocking uh, when you go through that book. One of the things you need to know about that book for you to understand it is what is said four times. It says, and there was no king in Israel, 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 four times. And coupled with that, two of those four times, it says that everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. So that when you're trying to understand the book of, uh, of Judges and you're trying to make sense of some of the things that seem so bizarre when you're reading through that book, you have to remember that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And the result of that is the chaos. The result of that is the up and down, the up and down, the up and down of that entire book. But you know, as I was thinking about Judges, as I read through it here a number of days ago, I couldn't help but think about 1 Corinthians. Because if there is a book in the New Testament that could be characterized by that same statement, everyone did that which was right in his own eyes, there is some ways in which 1 Corinthians fits that very pattern. You begin looking through this book and you begin to realize that these people are just doing what they want to do. They're not following the head of the body. They're not following the word that was given to the body. They're just doing what they want to do, and they're doing what is right in their own eyes. And the result of that is is chaos and confusion and conflict. You talk about a chaotic church. 1 Corinthians, the church in the city of Corinth was a chaotic church. If you just want to get an idea of some of the things that are going on in this church, you should recognize that they were diminishing the message of the cross. In the opening chapters, Paul comes and he says, we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, that's a stumbling block. To the Greeks, that's foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
But somehow in the midst of their confusion and their chaos and their conflict, they were losing the centrality of the message of the cross. They were destroying the unity of the church. They were each pushing for their own desires, and they were each emphasizing themselves over others, and they were elevating themselves above others. And in the process, they were pulling the very fabric, the unity of the fabric of the church apart. They were living in morally detestable ways. They had a man in their congregation that came apparently every week when they gathered. They had a man in the congregation who was having an incestuous relationship with his father's wife, his stepmother, his father's wife. And they didn't do anything about it. They didn't seek to discipline it. They didn't seek to deal with it. They were rejoicing in the fact that we are so tolerant and so magnanimous in our graciousness that we allow this man to sit in our midst without dealing with his sin. But it wasn't just that man. There were many others that were involved with the paganism and the practices of paganism that involved immorality. They, they were parroting the wisdom of the world. They were parroting the wisdom of the world. I have pointed out to you a number of times already, you'll see it again in coming messages, where, where Paul is using the phrase or phrases that they were using in Corinth that supposedly was their justification for what they were doing, that was supposedly the excuse for why they were behaving as they were. And what they were in essence doing was taking the wisdom of the world rather than the wisdom of God, and they were just parroting that wisdom, the wisdom of the world. They were exalting themselves above one another. I've pointed out to you on more than one occasion that they were puffed up. Don't you love that phrase? They were puffed up. Do you see me? Do you know who I am? Do you recognize my importance to this congregation? Can you understand my value here? Isn't God lucky to have me? They were puffed up. They were causing confusion and disorder in the church. When they would come together in the exercise of the spiritual gifts that God had given, there was disorder and there was confusion amongst them. And Paul has to write a little later in this letter to straighten out the use of those spiritual gifts. They were denying some of the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. The longest chapter of the book is chapter 15. It deals with the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of all believers who will one day be raised from the graves wherever they are. And yet there were some who were denying that resurrection. There were some who were saying that there was no resurrection from the dead. In the longest chapter of the book, Paul has to deal with some of that, some of that false teaching in denying one of the key essential doctrines of the faith. But where we are in chapters 8 to 10, they were living for themselves without concern for others. They were living as if they were an island to themselves, each one an island to themselves. They were living as if it only matters me, it doesn't matter you. They were living as if they were individuals rather than as a community of believers. And in the process, they were harming younger, less mature believers and causing them to stumble along the way, some of them even to fall away. 
and to fall back into the paganism. Or, as we saw, they were hindering the gospel, the advance of the gospel, the way they were living, the things they were doing were putting roadblocks in the way for people to be able to come to Christ and for the gospel message to reach them. And this church is a mess. May I stop at this moment? May I just tell you that the one thing you don't find in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 to 16, you never find Paul saying, you know, that church is so messed up, I don't think you need to go over there. You realize that every church is messed up in some ways. Every church has problems. Every church has struggles. Every church has weaknesses. Every church has sins that have to be dealt with. Every church, because every church is made up of what? People. They're made up of people. Paul doesn't say, just abandon that church. Just walk away from that church. There are problems in that church. What I want you to do is walk away from it. What Paul does is he writes back and he addresses that church to set things in order. He's answering a letter that had been written to him. Dear Paul, let me tell you about what's going on in our church and let you tell us how we should address these things and how we should respond to these things. And Paul sits down under the inspiration of the Spirit of God and he responds by writing this letter, 1 Corinthians. And in these chapters, chapters 8 to 10, he deals with this subject of them living for themselves without concern for others. And what is the controversial subject or the controversial issue that's creating such a stir where they're pressing their own selves ahead of others. What is it? It's the issue of eating meat that's been offered to idols. Now, just hang on with me for a moment because I don't think that's going to be our issue. The last meat we got came from one of the local grocery stores. It didn't come from one of the temples where the offerings had been made to a false god. Understand? But understanding what's going on here helps us to understand how we apply this to our lives. And their problem was meeting, was eating meat that had been offered to idols. And the question was, should Christians be doing this? Number one, should they be going up to those temples like the temple of Aphrodite? and getting the meat or eating at the fellowship meals that followed the worship of Aphrodite because the best meat was saved for those meals? Or should they buy it out of the meat market if they know that it's meat that's been offered to a false idol? Should they buy that out of the meat market? If they were to go to a friend's house, and at a friend's house, the friend said, the meat that I'm about to serve you is meat that was offered to idol. Should they sit down and eat it? And that was the question that was going on in Paul's response comes back in two ways. One is if it disturbs or it harms a younger believer, don't do it. If it hinders the gospel or distracts from the advance of the gospel, don't do it. But it's not likely that you and I are going to be dealing with the subject of meat offered to idols. But please understand, what I'm about to tell you is really the heart, part of the heart of our Christianity. This is going to de determine how genuine you are about following Jesus Christ. This is going to determine just how genuine you are about your interest in the souls of lost men and women. 
that you would restrict yourself from doing something, whatever it is, it won't be meat offered to idols, but whatever it is, that you would restrict yourself from doing something if it would cause some harm to a younger believer and cause that younger believer to stumble, or if it would cause a hindrance to the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ or somebody coming to Jesus Christ. That's going to test your Christianity. Because in American society, we live by completely different adages. For instance, what do we hear people say today? Follow your heart. Whatever you want to do, you do it. Or how about this one that's so common today? Live your truth. Do you realize how silly that is? There's only one truth. You can't have your truth, and you have your truth, and I have my truth. It doesn't work that way. Truth is truth. But live your truth. Or somebody will say, if it feels good to you, do it. The only thought is for yourself. The only thought is your own self-aggrandizement. The only thought is, does it satisfy me? Or that famous Nike phrase, just do it. Just do it. Don't stop and think about whether it harms anybody else and causes anybody else to stumble. Don't worry about whether it hinders the gospel. This is what you want to do. Just do it. Or how about don't worry about what everybody else thinks. Ooh. Matter of fact, we're told repeatedly, you shouldn't care about what anybody else thinks. Well, I understand some of what they're saying, but at the core of what they're saying, they're wrong. Because every Christian should care about what other people think. Your testimony matters for the cause of Jesus Christ. Your testimony matters for whether you're going to be an encouragement to others in their faith or whether you're going to be a discouragement to them. Your testimony matters as to whether the gospel will be received or the gospel will be rejected. Or how about this particular adage? You just do you. You just do you. You say, Pastor, our problem today isn't that we have a struggle with meat that's offered to idols, but the reality is what he's teaching us here are principles that apply in the 21st century, that if whatever it is that is controversial, for the most part it's neutral, but it's for some reason controversial, if doing that controversial thing, God doesn't forbid it, God doesn't say it's okay, he doesn't say you shouldn't do it, And it's controversial. If doing something that's controversial will hurt a brother or sister in Christ who's younger in the faith and cause them to stumble, he says, don't do it. And if it causes some hindrance to the advance of the gospel or to somebody receiving the gospel, he says, don't do it. And that's going to be one of those ultimate kind of tests about the genuineness of your of your faith and the genuineness of your Christianity and whether you're willing to limit yourself for a greater purpose and limit yourself for a greater cause. Yes, you may have liberty and yes, you may have freedom to do certain things and maybe they're not forbidden by Scripture. They're not prescribed by Scripture as something we should stay away from and yet you avoid it and you stay away from it because you know the potential of it can harm somebody else or hinder the advance of the gospel. 
You say, Pastor, I don't know if I can live that way. Yeah, I know, I understand. That's the American church today. We live for ourselves. This is all about me. This is about what I want. This is all about what God does for me. This is not about what I do for God. This is about, not about me being an instrument in God's hand in this world. This is about me manipulating God so that he'll do what I want him to do for me. It's about me. And Paul comes and he says, that's not the way Christians are supposed to live. Christians are supposed to be concerned with the glory of God. Now, Paul's going to use two examples. He's going to give you two instructions as to, to, to why we should live this way. The first one is found here in, in verse 14. He says, therefore, my beloved, and notice the words, my beloved. He speaks in the terms of, of, of a loving family. Therefore, my beloved, here's the first one, flee immorality. Or excuse me, flee idolatry. Flee idolatry. The second thing he's going to tell them to do is all the way down into verse 32. Down in verse 32. Give no offense either to the Jews, to the Greeks, or to the church of God. Ooh. Flee from idolatry and give no offense to Jews, Greeks, or to the church of God. Wow. You realize that to do any of these things means you've got to limit sometimes your life. Freedom and liberty that's yours has to be limited because you don't want to involve yourself in something that's idolatrous and you don't want to cause someone else to be offended and to fall away or even fail to come to Christ. Now, I want us to consider that first one for just a few minutes. Flee from idolatry. Paul says about these pagan temples, if you will, don't go there. Stay away from those places. In other words, Paul specifically says a Christian has no business up there at the temple of Aphrodite. That's not a place for a believer to go. If you'll remember the last message dealing with temptation, you'll be reminded of what he says in chapter 10, verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Then he goes on to talk about temptations that are common to man. You may think because you have liberty and you know those gods, those idols are nothing, that you can go up to that temple and you can be there at the time of the worship and you can eat the meat that's been offered in the fellowship meals that follow and you'll think that there's nothing's going to harm you. He says you shouldn't be there. Don't go up to those temples. You might say, well, pastor, we don't have temples to idols and we don't have idols like you're talking about whether it's Poseidon or whether it's Aphrodite or some of the other temples of that day we don't have temples like that and you'd be right but we still have idols and we still have temples they're just of a different sort it may be sports and we've got coliseums and we have grand gathering places all across the country there's entertainment, and there's theaters in every single town. There's money, and there are banks everywhere, and they're always springing up. There's fame. There's plenty of movies and TVs to keep up with. There's career. There's business offices, and there, there's businesses springing up. There's power. You find courthouses and state houses in every place we live. There's education. Specifically, in the higher education, there's colleges and there's schools. 
that are preparing people for life. There's recreation. Who hasn't been to an amusement park or who hasn't rented a vacational a vacation rental? Or there's leisure and there's property and ambition and even your family can become an idol. There's pleasure and the list can go on. In other words, these things that in and of themselves are not necessarily bad can become in any one of our lives something that is an idol. Because an idol is anything that you pursue to a higher degree and in a greater way than you pursue the almighty God himself. Anything that becomes the Lord of your life rather than Jesus being the Lord of your life. And sometimes we get caught up in idolatry and we don't even know we're caught up in that idolatry. In American society, we get so consumed with certain things that those things become our gods, little g, gods. And whatever those things tell us to do and say to us, we don't even stop to think about whether doing those things will harm somebody who's younger in the faith or whether it will be a hindrance to the advancing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't even think about it. We just are consumed with that particular thing. Whatever it may be, whatever it tells me to do, I'm going to do it without any consultation with the Almighty God whatsoever. It's interesting how Paul goes through here and he talks about this, and I want to point something out to you. He says, flee from idolatry. There's something I don't want you to do. There's some place I don't want you to go. I don't want you up there on the temple of Aphrodite. I don't want you up there eating meat at their fellowship meals after their worship after the sacrifices to that pagan God. I don't want you up there. You have no business up there. But he goes on, verse 15, I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. Why doesn't he want them up there? Why, does it, why is it important that, it, that they stay away? Well, he begins by talking about the Lord's Supper, something we're going to observe in the service this evening. He says, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one body and are one bread in one body, for we all partake of that one bread, that cup of blessing. In the observance of Passover, there were four cups from which they would drink in the process of the, of the Passover meal. That third of the four was called the cup of blessing. It was the observance of that third cup that Jesus instituted what we call today the Lord's Supper. Sometimes it's called communion, as it's called here, the communion. But do you hear what he says? When we come together as the people of God, we are expressing when we partake in the Lord's table, when we partake in communion, we are expressing a solidarity and a union with one another and a union with our God. That's why the Lord's Supper is so important. Not only that he instituted it and he commanded it for his church, but it is a means of us coming together as the people of God with one heart and one mind to worship the one true God. And to come into communion with him. He goes on. He talks then about Israel. He moves from communion. Why should you not go up there? Well, his first illustration is the Lord's table. He says, when you come together, what's happening there? There's a communion, a partnership that's going on. 
You're entering into a a fellowship with, with one another. But then he goes on. He talks about verse 18, observe Israel. Now he's going to move to the past. After the flesh. Are not those who eat the sacrifice, uh, sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything or what is offered to an idol is anything? Hear what he says? When we come to the Lord's table, we come into a communion, into a partnership with God where there, where there is a solidarity and there is a union that exists. In the Old Testament, when they brought their offerings to the temple and they sacrificed those animals and they came to worship God and to follow the law of God, what were they doing? They were coming and bringing themselves into a solidarity and a union with God. So he says, verse 20, rather than the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to, what's the word? demons and not to God. Here's why I don't want you to go up there. And I do not want you to have, same word for partnership, same word for communion. I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. In other words, he says, I I understand the idol itself is nothing. The God it represents is nothing. But the demonic powers that have spawned it is something. And I don't want you to go up to that temple mount, and I don't want you to be there when they're offering those sacrifices, and I don't want you to eat the meat at the fellowship meals that would follow. I don't want you to be there. Why? Because in the same way you come together for the observance of the Lord's table, and there's a solidarity and a union amongst yourselves, in the same way in the Old Testament they brought their offerings and their sacrifices, and there was a solidarity and a union that was taking place in those moments when you go up there. There's a solidarity, there's a union that you're entering into, but it's not with God, it's with demons. And I don't want you to have anything to do with the demons. He goes on, verse 21, you cannot, in my Bible I put two exclamation points beside that, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons, you cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. In other words... A Christian has no business in that environment. It's not compatible. They shouldn't be there because they're entering into a union. They're entering into, they're entering into a solidarity even with the idol's demon itself. Do you get what he's saying? There's not to be idols in our hearts. You say, okay, pastor, well, you were just talking about sports and entertainment and money and fame and career and power and education and recreation. There's no demons involved with any of those things, are there? Well, probably most of the time not. But do you understand how the demons of the world work, in the world work? I want you to take your Bible with me for a moment. I want you to go back to Isaiah Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah has a word for the king of Babylon, but when you hear some of the things he says to Babylon, you under to the king of Babylon, you know that he's speaking beyond the king himself alone. That this king is being motivated by the demons of hell. Notice, if you will, verse 12. Well, look at verse 4 first. He says that you will take up this proverb against, this is the king of Babylon he's speaking to. Verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. 
How are you cut down to the ground? Oh, wow, this is more than just the king we're talking about. This is a king that's being prompted and moved by the demonic world. Verse 13, for you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven and I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. This is more than just the king of Babylon himself. This is a demonically induced king of Babylon. You shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. What is behind some of the policies? What is behind some political decisions? What is behind some of the things and the choices that are made in a nation? Sometimes they're motivated by the demonic. Just turn a few pages over to Ezekiel chapter 28. Now we're talking to the king of Tyre. And it gets even clearer that he's talking about more than just the king of Tyre. That he's talking about what motivates the king of Tyre. What is behind the motivation of the king of Tyre. Again, verse 12, he says, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Wait a minute. This has got to be more than just the king of Tyre himself. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. On the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. Can I ask you a question? Does that sound like the king of Tyre alone? He's talking about the king of Tyre and what is behind motivating the king of Tyre. Verse 16, by the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, for the midst, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. In other words, I'm telling you that behind some things that happen on a national, maybe an international level, it's more than just people making decisions. Sometimes it's people making decisions that are demonically induced decisions. Let me bring it closer to you. Turn with me back to the Revelation. I want to point out to you five words. We won't look at all five of them. But let's just talk about just right here we are, where we are locally in the drug ep epidemic that's going on. And I want you to notice a word that's found here. Revelation 21, verse 8. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, here comes the word, sorcerers idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone which is the second death sorcerers it is the greek word pharmakeia a couple of times later in chapters 21 and 22 it's pharmakeia it's the noun form of the verb 
It's used earlier in Revelation 9. It's used in Galatians chapter 5. Who were these sorcerers? These were more than people who were just doing the spectacular or the supernatural. These were people who were induced by the drugs of the demonic. You say, why are drugs so prevalent? Why are drugs taking out our young people? And why are people even involved and interested in taking drugs? Because people are being motivated not just for the money they put in their pocket, but because of the demons that are inspiring it. Hey, let me just bring it down to your house, right where you live. Just look at Ephesians for a moment, if you will. And look at verse 26. Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 26, you say, what are you saying, preacher? I'm saying, I understand sports and entertainment and money and fame and career and power and education and recreation and leisure and property and ambition and family and pleasures and all of these other things aren't in and of themselves something that are idolatrous, but they can be. And sometimes they can be idolatrous to the degree that they are being motivated and inspired by the demonic to distract you and to turn you away from a loyalty and a commitment to Jesus Christ. Look at it, Ephesians chapter 4. Look at verse 25. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. That's a righteous anger. Do you struggle with righteous anger? I know I do. Mine is more unrighteous than righteous. Be angry and do not sin. He says, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Resolve the problem before you go to bed. Why? Nor give place to the devil. Ah, on the international stage, leaders can be motivated and moved by the demonic to institute policies and to make decisions. In our own community, in our own nation, those that are selling and buying drugs aren't just satisfying what their bodies are craving. It's a demonic power that's at work behind the scenes. That's why you can't solve the problem with drugs alone, some kind of counter drug alone. They have to have the freedom that comes through Jesus Christ. And even in our own homes, when we hold on to anger and we hold on to bitterness, we are given place to Satan in our lives so that he can move us and motivate us and distract us from the things he wants for us. You say, what am I saying? I'm saying most of the things we talked about earlier aren't necessarily idols in and of themselves, but they can become those idols. They can even be idols that are motivated by the demonic world for the purpose of turning away your loyalty, diverting you and distracting you from following Jesus with all of your heart. He wants to be the Lord of our lives. And we should flee anything it's not going to be Aphrodite. It's not going to be on the Acro Corinth. It's not going to be up on that mountain. We should flee anything that divides our loyalty or causes us to be distracted from our commitment to Jesus Christ. 
There can be no challengers to his supremacy in our lives, period. No challenge, period. He is not the Lord of your life if there are idols controlling you. So let me ask you a question. What would it have taken today for you to say, hmm, I was invited to do something. I'm going to go do that instead. What, would it, what will it take this week for you to say, oh, I know I should be reading my Bible and praying, but I'm going to go and do this instead? What will it take this week for you to be turned away knowing that there's somebody that you need to give the gospel to, somebody you need to share Jesus with, but you're going to be diverted to something else. You're going to follow a different path. What is it? It can be an idol, can it? Whatever has your heart, whatever has the lordship in, in your life, whatever, whatever commands you, whatever directs you, whatever tells you what to do. Let me ask you a question, men and women. If a company comes and says, I want you to move across the country, who do you ask first about a decision like that? You ask God first, don't you? Because that decision could be the work of a demon to get you to a place to distract you and divert your attention from that which is most important and even turn your children away from God. We don't operate on the basis of what anybody else tells us to do. We get it from God first. He is the priority. Jesus said it this way, he who is not with me is against me. I mean, there is no middle ground. You can't be in the middle here. You can't say, well, I'm going to do a little of this and a little of that. I'm going to hold on to a little bit of what, I, what, what is an idol to me and a little bit of what the Lord is to me. I'm going to hold on to both. No, you're either with him or you're against him. You're either all in or you're not in at all. You're either all in or you're not in at all. There is no room for double-mindedness where you can't decide, what am I going to do on the Lord's day? I'm going to church. I'm gathering with the people of God. I'm going to serve in the ministry. I'm going to witness this week. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to pray. There's no challenge to those things. If I have to make a decision, my first, my first person to consult is God himself and to listen to what he has to say as to whether he wants me to do something in my life. There is no room for compromise in our loyalty to God. We are either with him or we are against him. And it's a fallacy of our thinking to think we can have both at the same time. Isn't that what he says here? Verse 21. I take you back to chapter 10, verse 21. You cannot, double, exclam double uh, exclamation points in my Bible, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. You can't have it both ways. You either go all in or you're really not in at all. God is looking for us to give him our total and absolute allegiance. And why wouldn't we want to? Jesus came from heaven's glory robed in flesh yet without sin to live amongst us and to pay a penalty he didn't owe 
a penalty that we rightfully owed. To pay that price in full on the cross of Calvary, to suffer a death, an ignominious death, the worst possible death you can imagine, to be separated from God on our behalf, to be buried and thought they were through with him. And on that third day, he came out victorious. And now that Jesus has paid for your soul with a price, and you belong to him. There could be no challenge to his lordship. There could be no challenge to his authority in your life. There could be no challenge. What he says to do, we do, period. No matter what anybody else tells us to do, we always do what the Lord says to do. Now, look, I understand that if you're listening to me today, you're watching live stream today, and you don't know Christ as your Savior, I understand you don't comprehend this lordship thing. You don't comprehend giving up your rights. You don't comprehend limiting your freedoms. You don't comprehend being so involved in a mission that you would live in a way that you didn't want to harm somebody who was a younger believer or you didn't want to hinder the gospel. For people that don't know Jesus, they don't understand the freedom. They don't understand the joy. They don't understand the peace. They don't understand what it means to possess eternal life. They don't know what it means to have have a home reserved for them in heaven. They don't know that. I understand. They don't get it. And they're not going to get it. You're not going to get it. Till you come to Jesus. So let me invite you to Jesus. Jesus will change your life. He'll change your perspective on life. He'll change your purpose and your drives in life. He'll change you and give you something to live for that's eternal and not just temporal. If you'll come to Jesus, he'll be your Savior today. But now listen, for all of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, the question every day is, who's going to be the Lord of my life today? Am I going to listen to him? Am I going to do what he says? What are you going to do when your company says, we're going to promote something you are going to personally promote something that you know the scripture says is forbidden? Who's going to be the Lord of your life? Who are you going to follow? And who are you going to obey? Or will you be diverted? Say, well, what I plan to do is a little bit of it, but not all of it. It doesn't work that way. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons, and you can't partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. You can't do them both. God is looking for the absolute authority in our lives. I love to quote Charles Spurgeon. I'm going to give you a quote. Every person, he says, must serve somebody. We have no choice to that fact. Those who have no master are slaves to themselves. Depend upon it. You will either serve Satan or Christ, either self or the Savior. You will find sin, self, Satan, and the world to be a hard taskmaster. But if you wear the uniform of Christ, you will find him so meek and lowly of heart that you will find rest unto your souls. If you could see our captain, capital C, if you could see our captain, 
You would go down on your knees and beg him to let you enter the ranks of those who follow him. It is heaven to serve Jesus.